Evidence in Motion is excited to be back to hands-on learning for the first in-person Align conference in more than two years. If you've attended in the past, you know that the content is awesome. And if you haven't, this is a great year to add it to your calendar. The event features an all-star lineup of speakers and hands-on lab options that will allow you to build your own track based on what you want to learn. Align will be held in Dallas, Texas, August 26th through the 28th. JOSPT Insights podcast listeners get an exclusive 10% discount when you use the code JOSPT podcast 10. That's JOSPT P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1-0. Register soon. Early bird pricing ends July 1. Learn more at alignconference.com. That's alignconference.com. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Sometimes it's difficult to know what the best approach is for preventing and treating shoulder injuries in athletes, and the absence of high-quality research certainly doesn't help you. Enter the 2022 Byrne Consensus Statement on Shoulder Injury Prevention, Rehabilitation and Return to Sport – a paper that delivers a flexible, principle-based approach to preventing and treating shoulder injuries and managing return to sport that you can implement with any athlete in any sport. Over 40 international experts shared their expertise across training load and risk management, shoulder rehabilitation and return to sport decision-making for this paper. And today we hear from the two clinician researchers who led the work, Swiss physiotherapist and PhD candidate Ariane Schwank and Canadian-based British physiotherapist, researcher and knowledge broker, Paul Blasey. Ariane and Paul share the headlines, and they explain how you can put the content into practice tomorrow. Ariane Schwank, Paul Blasey, thank you for joining me on JOSPT Insights today. Hey, Claire. Hi, Claire. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today, and I'm going to jump straight into the questions because we've got a ton of great content to cover all about the athlete and the shoulder and injury. So let me start by asking you to tell us a little bit about the process that went into developing the 2022 Burn Consensus Statement that you've both co-led on the athlete's shoulder. It's got a long title, and we're going to get into the different elements of prevention, rehabilitation, return to sport. So can you start, Ariane, by telling us a little bit about the process? How did you get to the point of this consensus? Who contributed? And what were the steps of getting to this final published paper that appears in the 2022 January JOSPT issue? It all started in July 2019, where you, Claire, called Paul and me and uh, asked whether we would contribute and be part of this consensus statement together with Mario Bizzini from Sports Physio, uh, Swiss Sports Association in Physiotherapy. We were on board. Uh, this was a great opportunity. And so we started the whole process in August 19 by searching the literature for conflicting evidence, missing evidence, or weak evidence, published evidence for 
our categories that we wanted to cover in that consensus statement. So these were uh, prevention, load management, uh, rehabilitation, return to sports. We then formulated uh, statements for a Delphi process uh, where we had invited experts in the shoulder field in sports or athletic shoulder around the globe and we then started off with Delphi round one in September 19 with 56 statements in all these categories. Then we analyzed everything. Paul and I were in the lead of all the analysis and formulated new statements for Delphi round two. When we were recruiting people, we tried to make sure that we had a, a nice equal representation, male, female experts from across the world. Once we got the second round of statements out of the way, we then identified areas where we had agreement. So we considered agreement to be 70% on a on a zero to 10 scale. If, if the average is over, over seven or over 70%, then we, we said that was consensus. And then we took those areas where we had potential dissent or non-consensus to an in-person meeting in Bern in November 2019, which was part of the Sport Physio Swiss yearly conference where they were presenting on the athletic shoulder. And we had the 10 experts who were part of that conference who've been identified as keynote speakers at the conference to help us to discuss and, and thrash out some of those areas where we still didn't have an agreement from that group of international experts. Yeah, and we actually prepared with topics that we selected the experts for. So there were always groups of two who then presented their uh, topic of expertise at this in-person meeting, which gave us the basis of discussion. And we could really go through one topic after the other and, and could finish off within like six and a half hours of discussion meeting. And uh, that was a very good uh, base for, for the whole consensus statement. And it sounds like a huge amount of work went into this from the very beginning of pulling all of the research, all of the knowledge that we have from research, synthesizing that information, putting it together in the 56 beginning statements, as you said, Ariane, collating all of that information, recruiting all of the experts. And I think there were at least 40 different international experts who contributed to that consensus process. So I want to publicly take the opportunity to thank you both and acknowledge that huge amount of work that you've both led. When we think about all of the research that's in the sports rehabilitation field, some of our listeners might be a bit surprised that there's not enough sort of solid research upon which to base some clinical recommendations. I'm also interested to know, Ariane, that you and Paul, you're both on the front line of clinical practice. You're treating patients every week in the clinic. Why do we need this consensus? And how is the information from this consensus statement going to help clinicians like you and Paul, who are working with athletes and patients every week? But as a clinician, I think this paper and this consensus statement is a really good summary. You don't have resources to conduct your own systematic review to answer your question. And with this statement, you know that you're not alone with your questions out there. 
but it is a guideline. It is a very good principle-based approach uh, that we outlined in this paper that you as a clinician may use to support your clinical reasoning, to support how you can communicate with your patients and how can you set more realistic goals or how can you support the monitoring throughout the rehabilitation. And the way it is written, it is very practically oriented. I just wanted to highlight, it's actually quite scary how little there is out there once you start doing literature searches for shoulder return to sport evidence at any level, whether that be elite or amateur. And there's a big body of strength coming from Scandinavian areas. So we were lucky enough to have Martin Asker, Moretta Muller, Stig Anderson, all as part of this process. Those guys actually have published a lot of great work in this area. But there's not much from the rest of the world. And even then, we've still only got a few actual clinical trials that will help us to tell tell us what we can do with these groups. So we needed to come to some sort of agreement and we needed people who were at the forefront to help us to come to this agreement on what we should do and how we can help guide people like ourselves, like Ariane and I, who still work in the clinic and want to know how best to take people through that rehab process when they come in with a shoulder injury. Part of what highlights how this consensus was developed by experienced clinicians for everybody who works with athletes with shoulder problems is that you took a lot of care to frame content that can apply to the really diverse and variable sports that athletes of all ages and all levels and all abilities participate in. And there's a really elegant, nice image. It's figure one in the paper, and it it shows, it groups the different types of sports according to the demands that they place on the athlete's shoulder. Can you tell us a little bit about those complex demands that different sports place on different athletes' shoulders and how you've tried to consider those demands in the recommendations that you put into the consensus statement? We started off with much more specific uh, statements and questions, for example, related to rotator cuff or the scapula or injuries like luxation or also multidirectional instability. And we learned very quickly that we cannot be that specific or very injury-based. I think Anne Cools, who first threw in an idea of how to demonstrate or or, um, the different demands on the shoulder of the different sports. And there we started discussing as a group that we do have shoulder heights, under shoulder heights, overhead. We do have reverse chain demands. We do have contact sports. Whatever comes in rehabilitation or return to sport, you need to first know what is the demand of on the shoulder in your athlete, in the sport, in the position. As a physiotherapist, you need to overview a lot of specific factors so reverse chain is anything where the upper limb acts as the primary point of contact with the surface. So we know that in most cases, the lower limb is the, the primary ground force contact point, whereas we considered that there's plenty of sports. So climbing, for instance, where the upper limb is actually the point of contact with the surface that you're interacting with. So you're going to be pulling in most instances on through your upper limb and then most of the force is going to be coming through the shoulder girdle. We needed to represent that in this figure where there was going to be a much higher demand coming from the shoulder as a ground force contact point as opposed to 
way of throwing, for instance, where you're still generating a lot of force from the lower limb and trying to transfer it through to the upper limb. And so we wanted to just also represent that you need to be position position specific, not just sport specific. I think it's it's really great information and and so helpful to have that, as you say, in one easy to interpret, easy to read graphic. I want to talk a bit about the screening tests that came up in the consensus. Tell us a bit more about how the consensus differentiates between screening from an injury prevention perspective and screening from a rehabilitation perspective. How would you encourage people to think about screening when they go back into the clinic tomorrow? The effectiveness of screening remains inconclusive still after that consensus statement as well. For example, the question whether or not to screen for scapular dyskinesis and the Delphi group, so that's the expert around the globe, they remain split, like half said yes, do screen and half said do not screen. For example, scapular dyskinesis may be a normal adaptation to the demand of the sport. So 61% of overhead athletes do show a scapular dyskinesis. So that's actually a normal adaptation, physiological. So if you screen for that without having had an injury, so say screening for prevention, you may be misled and start programs that are not really important for that athlete. So we formulated risk factors. So if you screen for these risk factors in your prevention, this is very interpretation dependent and may also mislead. So it is very difficult to to screen for these risk factors. I give an example, reduced range of motion. A rugby player may not be that affected in his playing ability if he has or she has an end of flexion reduction, but a swimmer may be. The consensus group agreed. They suggest a generic musculoskeletal shoulder screening, which entails, for example, a range of motion measure, a strength measure, also like a a load measure. So to have a variety of tests and to do that pre-season, mid-season and end-season, more to monitor an athlete through the season they'll screen for specific factors that you don't even know if they are really important for your specific individual athlete. I'm interested in what the consensus says about the things to focus on or not focus on when you're planning, shaping, guiding and progressing a rehabilitation program, including return to sport. How much should I pay attention to range of motion, pain, strength, some of these other factors, psychological factors as well? When we looked at some of these questions, we divided them up into that continuum of return to participation, return to sport and return to performance. And then we asked the experts, would you need full range of motion to be able to hit each of these levels? And and we came up with some different answers, which was interesting. And we tried to get this across in the paper that for overhead athletes, people agreed that in order to return to sport and return to performance, performance you need a full range of motion if you're an overhead athlete because there's a lot more demand in those end range flexion points for for those also if you're trying to serve in tennis for instance you need to be able to generate the force from a really sort of high arc of range of motion 
Whereas if you're a contact sport athlete and particularly an under shoulder height athlete with an injury, you might never need to get full range of motion again because there's a good chance that you're not going to be working in those end ranges. There was an agreement that you actually didn't need to get full range of motion to go back to, to full performance in those underarm contact sport athletes. So it's about understanding the specific demands of the sport and then putting it in together with the context that the athlete finds themselves in. Ariane, let's talk a little bit about rehabilitation and the rehabilitation programs specifically for athletes with shoulder injury. You frame seven principles for restoring strength and sport-specific movements. Can you tell us what those seven principles are, please? Number one was that we should let irritability guide your rehabilitation progression. The second key principle is address clinically relevant glenohumeral range of motion deficits using active exercise therapy. Key principle three was do address the scapula in rehabilitation, but, but do not screen for dyskinesis. And key principle four was select the appropriate exercise. So that's, for example, open chain versus closed chain. Five was include plyometrics early in your rehabilitation progress. And then also key principle six was train the brain. And key principle seven was sports specific exercises. Paul, can you share an example or two of a plyometrics exercise? Ariane mentioned that one of the key principles is plyometric training. So let's give the listeners a bit of a taste of of what that might look like. We had the plyometric training divided up into early and late phase plyometrics. So we had some nice ball, the wall tap exercise. It was an early stage. So it's low load, just keeping, making sure that the rotator cuff is still being exposed to that plyometric force early on. And then in the later phase, we started having things like push up with a clap and, and things like that, where the force is actually much higher you're in a position where the shoulders actually having to generate a lot more force to push against gravity against from the floor. And the reason why we wanted to keep plyometrics in the program throughout, and we said that they needed to be included early on, is that we know that these athletes are going to be returning to a really high level of demand. And we know that if we lose that level of demand for a long period of time, so if we take them out for a month, two months, then when we return them, there's always that chance that the tissues are going to get irritable again because they're being re-exposed to that load, which is essentially new or novel to the shoulder again. So we wanted to have uh, an expectation that they don't lose that capacity if possible. And we set out a few exercises in the paper, as Ariane said, in one of the tables where you could look for a reference and see, okay, there's a couple of nice exercises there that we can keep early on. And then when we want to get them back to that return to performance, then we can start to include some of these higher load shoulder exercises for plyometrics as well. And also from a motivational aspect, as a clinician, you want to give your patient, your athlete, as much as possible. So this person keeps motivated to do your exercises. So if that person can start early with a ball throw or a drop catch or a ball tap, as Paul said, that's very motivating. And that may also feel I'm closer to return to participation than if you are still just sliding up the wall and hope for the best. 
Yeah, we need the variability to keep us interested, particularly for someone who's going through a long process of recovery and rehabilitation and that long transition back to sport. So I'm really grateful for you both sharing those examples. I think there's a ton of examples contained in this consensus document. So Paul, where can people find these examples that you're talking about? We were fortunate enough when we wrote the the final stage, the return to sport stage, we, we had six domains that we agreed on should be part of it. And we had pain, range of motion, strength, power, psychological readiness, sport-specific training, and the kinetic chain. So in each of those sections, we outlined case studies that were for each of the individual areas. So the overhead athlete, the under-shoulder height athlete, and then the, the reverse chain athlete. Uh, and we gave some nice examples of how to achieve each of those domains. So the range of motion domain, the uh, sport specific domain, et cetera. Some nice videos that were included in the supplementary material to the paper. We had a, a production company in and then record for us these videos in, in nice HD so that the, the reader would be able to see exactly what we meant when we said, you know, this is an example of what you can do to help get the athlete back to their levels of performance. But we were intentional when we wrote these that, again, as Ariane outlined earlier, that we were principle-based and we didn't want people to take them as a recipe and say, oh, if I do all of these with my athlete, my athlete's going to be fine because we couldn't say that for every specific sport, this is what you should do because we were trying to cover the whole gamut of sport, which you know is so wide that we needed to have different examples and people could pick and choose which ones fitted with their individual sports that they were working with. I really like how you've taken a lot of care and thought to put that together and this this idea of principle base that is then applicable to whatever the context and whatever the athlete is really helpful. So thank you for that. And you're right, people can link to, if they go to the article page on the jospt.org site, and we'll link to the article directly, click on the supplementary materials tab and all of the 22 different videos will drop down there and, and people can can access those videos directly. Let's start to wrap up for today. Ariane, any special shout outs that you want to make? One really important point is uh, what we mentioned earlier about the culture in, in the sports field that youth athletes should be focused more on and also to include load measures like very easy questions like how hard was this on your shoulder or how hard was the training for you, like rate of perceived exertion. So to include the subjectivity of, of the of the athlete into your testing and screening and also to and include their decision much more into our clinical rehabilitation and return to sports because that's what we need. We need their feel. And I think Mirette is very strong in that, all that load management section and she really highlighted this as well to include youth athletes. And yeah, for me, this was just a really, really great experience and it continues to be a great experience. I want to thank the two of you because you taught me a lot and it was a really nice experience to talk with you overseas and um, this is not just a, a no-brainer it was a lot of work and I think it was a great time and also to all our co-authors that were great working with and on point so that's Merete, Martin, Martin, Suzanne, Chris, Deke, Ian, Rod, Mario, Anne 
and also Michael Wong for PhysioU. He's done all the physio videos, so the exercises and the tests. That's a great contributor list and, and acknowledgements. Thank you. Paul, anything that you'd like to add? Uh, I think Ariane said nearly all of it there. So she she, re- uh, she listed all of our co-authors. I just wanted to say thanks to them as well. They, they brought a fantastic amount of clinical and research experience to the table. And all we can hope is that when we were writing the paper, we wanted to make this as clinically relevant as possible. So we wanted the, the person working in the clinic right now to be able to pick up the paper and say, I've got this guy in front of me, I'm not 100% sure where to go. And they could get the principles and get this information that came direct from the people who are right at the cutting edge to say, this is what I can sort of learn from these people and apply it today in practice. So I just want to say thanks to them because without them, we wouldn't have been able to to produce this and to try and summarize it from experts around the world. So big thanks for me for that. Yeah. And thanks from me to both of you for joining us today on JOSPT Insights to talk about the consensus, to bring it to life. I think it's always, it's a treat to hear from the people who have put all of the work into developing such an important paper to share the nuance and bring some of the words on the page to life and and to really highlight how you envisage this helping clinicians help patients and athletes. Thanks, Ariane, and thanks, Paul. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.